good morning. Bring you uh, greetings from Bangkok City Baptist Church, which is a church that did not exist this time last year. But because of the faithfulness of this church and several other churches by raising up a team and sending them out and supporting them, the same gospel that is preached this morning here at Marlboro was the same gospel that was preached just a few hours ago in Bangkok, Thailand. So thank you for your support and your faithfulness. Thank you for sending us Susanna. We love Susanna, and we know it was hard for you to, to give her up to us, but she's doing good work, and we are grateful for your partnership in the ministry and in the gospel. Well, I hate conflict. No, I really hate conflict. If you get to know me, you'll know that there is no more awkward situation for me than to be in a room, and all of a sudden, the tension begins to rise. Words are exchanged, glances are given, displeasure is obvious, peace has evaporated. I hate conflict when the conflict is with me, but even worse, is witnessing others who are in conflict with each other. I'm sure you've been there. You've been invited to a friend's house for for dinner, the conversation is enjoyable, the food is delicious, the laughter is free-flowing, and then all of a sudden, the husband, and it usually is the husband, <laughs> says something stupid and insensitive. Now, I can usually pick up on these things immediately. As soon as the errant word leaves his mouth, the knot in my stomach begins to form. The wife doesn't say anything straight away. But you can tell by the look on her face, the expression in her eyes, she's not going to let this go. Now, I hope beyond hope that I've misread the situation or that the husband's foolish words would just be ignored. But as I look down at my plate, playing with my fork, my eyes closed, my heart thumping, it happens. What did you just say? She says, her tone cutting the air like a samurai's sword, her words landing on the table like a grenade, and that's it. Even if the conversation is over in three minutes, the next three hours of my life are an angst-filled vortex of emotions until I am reassured that the world has not ended, my friends are not getting a divorce, and that by tomorrow I'm the only one still thinking about what happened the night before. And in God's and God in his kindness and wisdom and probably love for me has given me three sons. I have three boys. Now from the moment they wake up and by the time they utter their first word of the day, war commences. <laughs> That's my Lego. Give me it. He touched me. I don't want oatmeal. The soundtrack of the 6.30 a.m. hour in our home is usually the soundtrack of war and mortal combat. Literally every year of my life involves a fight with an American. My son's daily hostilities fought out on the battlefield of our living room rug, and I am convinced this is the main contributing factor to my hair loss. I hate conflict. Well, this morning, we're going to do the very thing I find the most challenging. We're going to be witnessing and studying a serious conflict 
in the life of the early church. If you can begin to turn to the book of Galatians, if you haven't already, I think it's on page 973 of the Pew Bibles. We're going to be in chapter 2 this morning of the book of Galatians. In chapter 1 of Galatians, we read how Paul is recounting his conversion, his testimony, and he talked about how he went to Jerusalem, the chief, the city of the Jews, where he received the right hand of fellowship from Peter and James and John. This was significant. The former persecutor of the church being received as a brother, as a servant of the church. In chapter one, there was peace and unity and love. Well, this morning we find ourselves in chapter two, and we're in the city of Antioch in Syria. And Paul is going to invite us to witness one of the most serious conflicts in the early church. He wants us to pull up a seat and listen as he retells the encounter he had with Peter, his fellow apostle. An encounter that John Stott describes as, without doubt, the most tense and dramatic episode in the New Testament. Two leading apostles of Jesus Christ, face to face, in complete and open and public conflict. So let's read about it now. Galatians 2, verses 11 to 21. I'm actually reading from the NIV. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before a certain man came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth are not sinful Gentiles. Know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ, Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For righteousness could be gained through the law. Christ died for nothing. Amen. In these verses, we see how Peter shows up in the city of Antioch. And when he does, Paul opposes Peter to his face. Now this is serious. If Zach and I had a public disagreement in the middle of this service and Zach got in my face 
and confronted me. Well, that would be pretty bad and really awkward. But Peter and Paul, these were apostles. Apostles of Jesus Christ. Apostles directly appointed by Jesus himself. Friends, I believe the reason why this conflict was so tense and so serious was that something massive was at stake here. Peter's behavior contradicted his belief. And as we were going to see in a moment or so, the actions of one of the apostles, Peter, betrayed his words and effectively made a mockery of the gospel. So I believe the main point of this text, and therefore the main point of our sermon this morning is simply this. A Christian is in great danger when his actions are in conflict with his faith. A Christian is in great danger when his actions are in conflict with his faith. Peter was condemned by Paul publicly because he allowed fear to control his actions. Thus, he was making a mockery of his faith. So in order for us to understand this text, we're going to break it down into two sections this morning. The first is going to be verses 11 to 14. And we're going to see a fear that condemns. Verse 11 to 14, a fear that condemns. And the second, verses 15 to 21, a faith that justifies. A faith that justifies. And I pray this morning as we consider this most tense of episodes in the history of the church that we too will learn to live in such a way that our actions and our behavior are are never in conflict with our faith and our beliefs. So let's consider first a fear that condemns. Look again at verses 11 to 13. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. In this episode, we see two apostles standing face to face to each other in open public conflict. Two apostles who loved Jesus, who were called by Jesus, who believed the gospel. What's important for us to realize, first of all, this is not a conflict about faith. They both shared the same faith. These two men affirmed each other's faith. Paul is not in any way claiming that Peter is denying the truthfulness of the gospel in his beliefs or his teaching. No, the issue here is not what Peter taught are believed, it's how he behaved. It's his actions. Peter's offense against the gospel was in his conduct. His behavior betrayed his beliefs. So what did he exactly, what did he do? Well, Peter showed up in Antioch. Antioch is the home of the, the main Gentile church. This is Paul's sending church as he goes out across the region to places such as Galatia to plant churches. And the Antioch church is an incredibly important and influential church. Peter, one of the main leaders of the Jerusalem church, arrives. 
And when he does, initially, he has no problems fellowshipping and associating with these Gentile Christians. Christians, since the earliest of days, love to eat together. And that's what's happening here. Eating together is an important expression of our fellowship. And so the Christians in Antioch often ate together. And Peter, when he first arrived, was eating with them. He sat with them. He ate with them. He talked with them. This was normal. These Gentile converts were not circumcised. They did not obey the Jewish food laws. And yet Peter, when he first arrived, happily sat down and ate with them. And some of you may be asking, what's the big deal about food? Why were the Jews so obsessed with food and circumcision? Well, to fully understand what's going on here, we need to to understand a little about what the Jews thought about themselves and about certain food. You see, the Jews believed that they were a chosen race. They'd been set apart by God as a chosen and holy people. And this setting apart was most clearly defined by three things. One, to be circumcised. Two, obey the Sabbath. Three, abstain from certain foods. That's what set them apart. That's what made them out to be a special people. That's what marked them out from the Gentiles. The Jews were prohibited from eating foods that were considered unclean, such as shellfish and pork. You can find the full list in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. To eat any food that was considered unclean would make them unclean. It would mean they were no different to any other race. They're no longer special. It meant they were contaminated. So to be a good Jew was to only eat foods that God declared to be clean. So when Jews became Christians, well, their world was literally turned upside down, even to what they ate. Even those Jews who believed in the gospel, like the Jews at the Jerusalem church that Peter was part of, still had a really hard time letting go of their practices. Many of them wanted to protect their special identity, their special status. Peter really struggled with this himself intensely until one night when God gave him a vision. We read about it in Acts 10. God gave him a vision of a sheet coming down from heaven. Maybe some of you will remember it. And on, on that sheet, he saw a buffet of unclean foods. Shellfish, birds of prey, pigs, reptiles. Then he heard a voice saying, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter refused. He couldn't. These jewels were so ingrained in him, he couldn't do it. Then the voice said, what God has clenched, you must not call common. In other words, God has now declared all foods to be clean. God has declared all those who believe are now clean. Immediately, Peter responded in faith. He went into the home of Cornelius, a Gentile believer, and he ate with him. And on this occasion, Peter's actions were in complete agreement with his faith. And now, just a little while later, 
Peter finds himself in Antioch. And he has no problems eating with the Gentile believers as long as no one really sees him. Until that is one day, one second group of men come in to the assembly. Who are these men? Verse 12 says a certain group of men from James appear. Well, these are these gate crashes to the party were most likely professing Jewish Christians, but they held a, to a false and Jewish nationalistic gospel. Paul says they came from James, but this doesn't imply that James gave them authority to go out. They just came from his church. These men started preaching that to be a true Christian, you had to be circumcised. You had to obey the law of Moses. They went even further. They preached that it was wrong for Jewish Christians to fellowship with uncircumcised Gentile Christians. They were preaching a message of one God, but two tables. One Savior, but two congregations. They were trying to rebuild the walls of separation, but within the church. And astonishingly, a number began to be convinced by them. In fact, they became so successful that even Peter and Barnabas fell under their spell. Verses 12 and 13 says, but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid. Why did he do it? Why did Peter separate himself? Why did Peter, a leader of the Jerusalem church, an apostle, give in to the pressure of the judging eyes and critical smears of these false teachers? Well, the reason's plain enough for us to see. Fear. He was afraid. He was afraid of their words and their accusations, and he probably feared persecution. He probably feared that his reputation was in jeopardy. He feared what rumors they would spread about him. In other words, he wanted to save his bacon by refusing to eat bacon. Thank you for laughing. (laughs) Peter may be saved by grace. He may be an apostle. He may be the rock upon which Jesus would build the church. But Peter, at the end of the day, was still Peter. And here we see Peter the waverer. Peter wavered, not in his doctrine, but in his behavior. Peter tended to do this, didn't he? Peter has a track record of wavering. Peter, the one who denied Jesus three times when he was threatened, he was afraid by what? A mere servant girl. Peter, who in a moment of fear-fueled insanity, took out his sword and cut off the ear of a Roman soldier. Peter was not the most stable of men. So when Peter called, when Jesus called Peter the rock, he didn't at that moment instantly transform Peter from a waverer prone to fear, denial, hypocrisy into a rock-like figure. Never moved again by any turmoil. Peter was still a work in progress. He was still Peter. See, Christ designated 
this most wavering of men a rock, not because Peter would literally be a rock, but that Jesus would, Jesus would so undergird his faith and his doctrine that this man, Peter, would remain loyal to Christ, the church, and the gospel until the very end. And he did. He was a rock, not because he never wavered, but because he always repented and he always persisted in faith. So even though Peter was the rock, he was also a man prone to fear and he often gave in to his fear. And in this episode, Peter gave in to his old ways. He allowed fear to consume him once again. And in that moment of fear, he lost sight of his senses and he fell back. He fell back into slavery. His belief did not waver, but his behavior momentarily betrayed his faith. Friends, there's much here for us in these verses to learn. First, as a reminder that no human leader of the church is infallible. Even Peter had moments in which fear caused him to wobble and his behavior betrayed his convictions. And your leaders will be the same. I love your elders. I love the leaders of this church. They have cared so well for me and my family over the years that we have served overseas. But the leaders of this church, just like the leaders of my church, although we are faithful men, we're all going to be assaulted by moments of fear. Controversies will arise. Men bent on sowing seeds of confusion will enter the assembly. Pressures will seem insurmountable. Finances will seem tight. The devil will do all that he can to cause the elders of this church and any church to fall back into fear. And there will be times, I can guarantee you, when we will waver. Not in our convictions, but in our behavior. Harsh words spoken. Decisions made too rashly. Things forgotten. See, church leaders, just like Peter, are also human. And they need friends. And they need rest. They need grace. And they need our prayers. So would you pray for your elders to not fall back into fear? Pray the same for the missionaries that you support and send out. Pray that God would protect them from enemies, from within or without. Pray that their words and their actions will always be consistent with the gospel that they preach. Pray that they'd be fortified by a rock-like faith. Second, all of us, as Christians are vulnerable to fall into fear and being condemned. If Peter could fall, we could all fall. See, fear is a ruthless ruler of the soul. Fear causes us to do things that betray our faith and deny the truth. What ways does fear affect your behavior? And what ways are you prone to waver in your actions? Fear draws us away from truth with its lies. Fear pulls us into its orbit with its deception. Fear separates us from God and his people. Fear says God can never be enough to meet your needs. Fear of missing out. Fear of being alone. Fear of rejection. Fear of suffering. Fear of persecution. 
fear that leads to secret and shameful sin. Viewing content online you know to be unacceptable to God. Drinking too much to numb the pain. Lying and cheating in order to get the thing you feel you need because you're afraid that you'll never get it any other way. Fear fueled rage, lashing out and yelling at others, engaging in behavior that betrays your faith. The fear that causes you to keep it all inside. Fear of exposure. Fear of embarrassment. Never wanting anyone to know the deep hole that you have dug for yourself. Fear that makes you feel awkward being around God's people. Fear that leads you to withdraw, to hide. You fear the loving questions of those you have covenanted with, and so before you know it, fear has separated you from God's people. Your fear has separated you from those you have been called to love. Fear, if we give it enough oxygen to breathe, will always separate us from God and his people. But friends, it doesn't have to be this way. For perfect love casts out fear. And we are the recipients of a perfect love. And by that love, we have been adopted as children of God. Children of the living God. And if we truly knew, if we truly knew how secure we are, then we would never again fall back into fear. Romans 8 says, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves, so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship, and by Him we cry, Abba, Father. You see, our fear leads to behavior that betrays our convictions and denies our true identity. And the remedy is to remember the truth of who you are. Remember who you are. And this is what Paul does. He literally gets into Peter's face. Not for him to face his fear, but for him to face the truth. Face the truth of who he truly is. Look at verse 14. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you, face, you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Paul's literally yelling at Peter and says, Peter, wake up, your fear is lying to you. You are not acting in line with the gospel. You are behaving as if you are saved by your works, but it's a lie. You have put your faith in Jesus Christ. You have been saved by Jesus Christ. You have been loved by Jesus Christ. You have been adopted by God the Father. You are a child of the living God. It doesn't matter what these men think about you. What matters is what God thinks about you. So act like the child of the living God that you are. Friends, we need people in our lives who are willing to get into our faces and do just this for us. We need those in our life who are willing to get into our face and remind us of who we are in Christ. When we step out of line, which we will, we need brothers and sisters to bring us back in line with truth. To remind us of truth, to remind us of our identity. So friends, do you allow others to speak into your life? 
and tell you when you've stepped out of line? Are you willing to receive those words from others in grace and truth? Well, that's what it means to be a church. To invite others into our fears. To remind each other of the truth. To tear down the fearful walls that separate and to be bound together in love and truth. So there's a fear that condemns. But praise God, there's a faith that justifies. Look at verses 15 to 21. We who are Jews by birth are not sinful Gentiles. Know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. Verse 19, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Friends, we come now to some of the most beautiful and liberating truths of the gospel. We're introduced in these verses to the one of the most important words in the Christian faith. A word that is both the central word of this letter to the Galatians and the central word to the entire Christian gospel. And it's the word justified. You see it here in verse 15. It's repeated in verse 16. It's there again in verse 17. Justified. It is impossible to understand the gospel if we do not understand this word. Paul therefore takes time in his rebuke of Peter, who's momentarily forgotten the gospel to unfold the meaning of justification. For it is this doctrine that Peter's behavior is most in conflict with. See, Peter, by removing himself from the Gentile Christians, is saying that the gospel is not enough. The gospel is not enough to clean, cleanse a man. The Gentile believers are not fully justified. They are still unclean. His act of separation, of falling back, strikes at the very heart of the gospel. You see, the doctrine of justification is the good news of the gospel. Justification is the very reason Jesus died on the cross. It is the good news that sinful men and women like me and you, Jew and Gentile alike, Thai and Scottish and American, sinful from our mother's womb, corrupted, unclean, defiled, guilty, can now be made acceptable to a holy God. Not because of any works that we may do, not because of any physical act of bodily mutilation in accordance with some law, not because of any abstinence from any food that once declared unclean, not because of any merit that we may have earned through certain good behavior, not because of any good deeds we may have done, not because of the consistency and unwavering nature of our good behavior. No. We are justified and made right before a holy God through the simple act of faith in Jesus Christ alone. 
Verse 16, a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Justified by faith. Martin Luther, the great reformer, says that if churches were to ever lose the doctrine of justification by faith alone, then they have lost the entire gospel. So if this doctrine is so central to our faith, then we need to understand it, and we need to rightly apply it, and we need to live as if it is true. So what does it mean? What is the word justified? It's really a legal term. To be justified is to not be condemned. It's the complete opposite of being condemned. All of us in our sins were condemned. All of us who sin, Jews and Gentiles alike, we all stand as equals under the weight of our condemnation. You see, before we met Christ, we were all unclean. None of us have obeyed God's law perfectly. We have all sinned. To sin once is to be condemned eternally. All of mankind, therefore, stands in the dark. And the charge sheet against us is red, and the charges against us are serious. Hypocrisy, deception, lying, lust, greed, covetousness, idolatry, murder, treason. None of us can claim to be without sin. In fact, if any of us claim to be without sin, then we have made ourselves a sinner because we are lying. We have all sinned against the holy God. We all stand condemned before our holy God. And the verdict has been issued for the Jew and Gentile alike, guilty, guilty, guilty. And for our crimes, a death sentence awaits. For death is the only punishment that can adequately pay for the sins of mankind against a holy God. A fearful and terrifying death and a permanent separation from all that is good for all of eternity. But God, as verse 20 says, in his great love for us, while we were still sinners, sent his son Jesus into the world to be born a baby, to live the perfect life that you and I can never live. And the charge sheet against him and him alone is empty. He never once sinned. He never wavered one time in his obedience. His behavior and his identity were never once in conflict with each other. And he obeyed all the way to the cross. And he was crucified on the cross where he endured the most agonizing pain known to man. And he was separated from God the Father for three days until he rose from the grave victoriously having conquered death and sin and fear. And now all those who place their faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation will be declared justified. See, if we place our faith in him, if we place our faith in Jesus Christ, then God will credit the obedience of Jesus and the death of Jesus to our account. That's what it means to be justified. That's what it means to be a Christian. Jesus took our punishment. He paid the price. 
And there, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Paul says in verse 20, we who believe in Christ have been crucified with Christ and we no longer live, but Christ lives in us. The life we now live in the body, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. We are now in Christ. Christ now lives in us. And how can those who are united to Christ ever be condemned? For to do so would be to condemn Jesus. There is now no condemnation. The charge sheet against us has been wiped clean. The record has been quashed. The guilt has been removed because we are justified by faith. And this is the same way whether we were born Jew or born a Gentile, born Scottish, born American, born a Thai. You see, Paul is effectively saying to Peter and the other wavering Jews, circumcision saved no one and never has. Food laws saved no one and never did. The sacrifices of yesterday provided no remission for the guilt of today. Not a single good work performed by man has ever been a salvific work. The Jews needed Jesus Christ just as much in the Old Testament as we do now. The hope for the Jew is the same as the hope for the Gentile. You see, these Judaizers were all deluded by a fearful deception. They were all afraid. They were the ones who were truly gripped in fear. They were all afraid that the cross of Christ was not enough to save them. This ultimately is the fear that ultimately condemns. They didn't believe Jesus was enough. They were deluded into believing that they needed to justify themselves. And this delusion that man can justify himself, can save himself, can make himself right before a holy God is the delusion shared by every religion of the world. Judaism, Islam, Buddhism. It is a delusion rooted in fear. It is a delusion because it is impossible. No man can ever justify himself by perfectly obeying the law because no man is capable of perfectly obeying the law except one man, Jesus Christ. You see, we may be able to keep some of the law, some of the time, but there's only one man who kept all the law all of the time. So whether we be Jew or Greek or Thai or American, educated or uneducated, tall or short, rich or poor, there's only one way of salvation. And that is faith in Jesus Christ. So friends, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then you have been justified. And your justification can never be altered. Once declared justified, always justified. Your guilt has been erased. Your punishment has been paid. Today, you do not stand condemned. Tomorrow, you will not be condemned. And on that final day, when you stand before Jesus Christ, you will not be condemned. And that is why we celebrate together what we're about to do, the Lord's Supper, as one people. Because the sun has risen. The night is no more. 
the battle is over. The conflict has ended. The darkness of our condemnation has been replaced with the light of our salvation. A light that will never go out. The tender mercy of God has come and has rested upon you if you believe. See, Jesus was born. Forgiveness incarnate to declare and to accomplish the justification of the elect. Jesus was born, grace personified, to meet the greatest need and longing of all mankind. Jesus was born, mercy embodied, to turn the promise of justification into the reality of our salvation. Friends, when your heart is tempted to waver from the truth, when your heart is prone to give in to fear and to waver from an awareness of God's great love for you, and his tender mercy toward you, that is when you are in the greatest danger of drifting into fear. But you don't have to fall back. There is a fear that condemns, but there's an even greater faith that justifies. And in faith, we can stand strong. Remind yourself of the truth of why he came. Remind yourself of how much he has loved you. Remind yourself of who you now are. For because of your faith, Jesus will never draw back from you. Because of your faith, Jesus will never separate himself from you. Because of your faith, Jesus will never be ashamed of you. Because of your faith, Jesus will never reject you. So we have no reason to fall back into fear. For we have been justified by faith. And it's because of this truth that we can all now as one people come to one table and celebrate together our one hope, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the one and only Savior. Let's pray.